I V M. We're sitting on a forest floor, staring intently at a man who has no idea that he is seconds away from changing the lives of billions of people that he will never know. His clothes are damp and uncared for. He's stained with mud, the hair on his armpits and chest tumbling out of the rags that he wears. His eyes are closed, crusted at the edges. He clearly hasn't opened them in a long time, but he's not asleep. On his face is a look of intense concentration. This man is looking at something deep within. He is feeling something that you and I, living in a world of concrete and glass, smoke and overflowing garbage, have barely ever experienced. Red and black ants crawl over him, but he is so still that they don't bother to bite his brown skin and wander happily in his matted, wavy hair, tumbling down to his shoulders, despite the knot that he tied it into many days ago. The forest floor is damp, and shoots of small plants are beginning to sprout gently around him. A lazy wind rustles through the canopy. Droplets rain down on us, but the man doesn't move. In the distance, a tiger roars. A herd of elephants rumbles. Something begins to shift. Something's different about the man. His brow, furrowed with concentration, is easing. His breathing grows deep, slow, almost ecstatic. His eyes, his ears and nose twitch in joy almost as if he is hearing, smelling, feeling for the first time. He smiles, and it is like a rush of fire. Perhaps he hears a great roar of sound, the torrents of oceans and rivers and rains, the gradual crush of glaciers. Perhaps he sees in his mind's eye the endless cycles of this earth, the churning of matter, forming and reforming into chittering insects, fluttering birds, clambering animals, walking, breathing, thinking, humans. Perhaps he feels the warmth of the sun and moon, the gradual movement of stars and planets, the blooming and dying of the earth as seasons and lives blossom and wither. Maybe he senses the towering heights of clouds and mountains, the depths of oceans and abysses. Perhaps he feels the bones of thousands of generations of creatures buried deep in the planet. Perhaps he feels the horror of extinction, of death, of suffering, and the healing light of kindness, love, compassion, and happiness. Tears begin to drip from the corners of his eyes as the weight of mountains lifts from his shoulders. The man once known as Siddhartha Gautama opens his shining, almond-shaped eyes. He sits still, looking at the world in wonder. He feels somehow present, here. He isn't thinking about anything else or feeling anything else than the unbearable lightness of being. Deep, deep within him is an understanding, a wisdom, a knowledge of all things, 
or at least the things that matter. He slowly flexes his limbs, breathing, smiling, feeling. He sits there for hours, days, lost in the vastness of each passing moment. Eventually, the man stands and strides away slowly. He looks at every branch and flower and insect as though for the first time, laughing, almost skipping, as though he has accomplished a great mission. Siddhartha Gautama was a small thing, but he will become something greater, a teacher, a revolutionary, a god. In his wake, kingdoms will crumble, empires will rise, and the history of India and the world, of peoples that he could never have known or imagined, will be changed forever. As he walks away, we are left alone in the stillness of the forest. Let's sit, my friend, and rest a while. Gautama has been on his own exhausting journey of many years, and so have we. Things will change forever, but there is time yet. For now, we can sit and hear the singing of birds, the rustling of leaves, the growing of plants, the endless decay and rebirth, suffering and joy of the world. My name is Anirodh Kanesati. Welcome back to Echoes of India, a history podcast. We last left the vibrant world of ancient India in 618 CE, a very different time and place from where we begin a new journey today. Over the last two seasons, we've watched the churning of the subcontinent's peoples in grand markets and cities from Takshashila in the northwest to Puhar in the deep south. We've heard the preening and boasts of kings and queens in perfumed palaces, the trumpeting of war elephants on bloody battlefields. We've attended debates on the nature of reality, watched the rise of new religious practices, heard the splendid syllables of new languages and courtly cultures, basked in the luxury of goods imported from distant continents, and shared the trials and tribulations of humble monks who braved everything to bring their dreams to life. But it's all still just a fraction of everything that has happened to bring our world to where it is today. If you've been listening to Echoes from the very beginning and have shared this journey with me, you have my deepest thanks. And if you've discovered Echoes recently, thank you for joining us on this odyssey to understand how India became India. I hope that through our travels, we'll keep discovering something else too. The deep swell of our shared humanity that bears us through the ocean of history. When we ended season 2, almost two years ago now, I promised that we would be entering the mad world of medieval India, a period that I've had the thrill of researching and writing about for my forthcoming first book. It's just a few months away, by the way. But like all journeys, this journey of reading and writing about kings and merchants and monks and architects taught me something about myself and my place in the world. Partly because halfway through, our planet was shaken by a pandemic of gigantic scale. Sitting in a comfortable home in India, as a lot of us probably did for much of the last year, I thought a lot about how and why our states and societies have reacted to COVID-19 the way they did. Like many of us, I learned with horror about the stories of migrant workers and small business people who, it seemed, were crushed by the immense cogs of a society that cared very little about them. Royals and monks, politicians and gurus, actors and sportsmen, 
We see them on Twitter and the news. We hear from them and people like them so often in history podcasts. It's easy to forget that history isn't just about them. It's about the little people, the billions and trillions of tiny decisions that they make add up into the ebbs and flows of time, make things move and make ideas real. History is about the farmer who decided that he'd rather stay and till the land and pay the king's tax rather than be a bandit. It's about the merchant's wife who decided that she'd rather donate to this monastery and feed someone than conduct an expensive religious ritual. It's about the chief's son who decided to leave his home and learn something about the world and teach people, the artisan who invented a new tool, the tailor who decided that cutting cloth in a new way would appeal to her clients more, the mother who held her sleeping baby in her arms and promised her that she will make a world that is kinder than the one she grew up in. And it's about the thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, billions of people like them, like us, who make countless everyday decisions and choices for themselves and their loved ones that merge into a tide of such proportions that it would terrify even the most ruthless of rulers, a tide that holds the power to make gods real, a tide that shapes the world that our descendants will inhabit. This season of Echoes is a story of how these little people made the things that we take for granted today. It's a story of how and why people decided, around 3,000 years ago, to turn from cattle raiding to farming, from sharing the wealth of their kin to paying taxes to warlords, from worshipping the tiny gods and goddesses of their tribes to bowing their heads to powerful gurus and monasteries. Because of their decisions, their descendants would go from living in tiny hamlets to sprawling cities lush with violence and sex and wealth, from obeying the commands of their village chiefs to heeding the commands of great and terrible emperors, from riding their father's oxen through muddy fields to preening on proud horses imported from thousands of miles away. These are all things that we take for granted about ancient India, but it didn't spring up out of nowhere. This world with all its seemingly unchanging religious, political and social structures was made by these tiny decisions of millions. So we'll start our journey again today with no assumptions, a blank slate, and try to get rid of the ideas that we have of India to look at this period with fresh and critical minds. As we see how these structures came to be, we'll learn about how layered and yet how fragile human societies are, and what kind of assumptions and bargains and compromises make them tick. I hope that watching the emergence of kings and monks and religions and trade in the Gangetic Plains in the first millennium before the Common Era will show you how absolutely revolutionary and important these centuries are, not just in the history of India, but also in the history of humanity at large. We'll meet some of the most recognizable people of this time. Buddha, Bimbisara, Mahavira, Ashoka, Alexander, Ajatashatru, Ambapali, Gargi, and many others. But we'll also see the societies that they lived in, struggled, shaped, and died in. Societies that we saw evolve in crazy, creative and diverse ways through interacting with the rest of the world in seasons 1 and 2. The build-up through this season will be gradual, but what it will lead to will, I hope, be something extraordinary. And then, when we finally travel to medieval India in season 4, I promise that it will blow your minds to see what magnificent and terrible structures they gradually became. All this is heavy stuff, I know. But I come to you older and maybe a little wiser than I was two years ago. 
I can't wait to tell you all that I've learned, enriched by the help of so many friends and volunteers and scholars. So let's return to ancient India, a world that is totally different from ours, but also a world that is in many ways the same. Our story begins in northwest India, one of the world's great geopolitical crossroads in the early 3rd millennium BCE. This is an important time, not just in the history of India, but in the history of the world. You see, one of the oldest and largest urban civilizations of the Bronze Age, the Harappan culture or Indus Valley civilization, was beginning to fade. At its peak, around 2600 BCE, the Indus Valley civilization was home to nearly 5 million people. That might not seem like a lot to us today, given that India alone has a population of over 1.3 billion. But those 5 million people back in the 3rd millennium were more than most other Bronze Age urban civilizations combined, including the great pyramid and tomb builders of Egypt, the citadel designers of Crete, and the warlike emperors and builders of temple mountains of Sumer. It was nearly one-fifth of the entire human population at the time, which is why it's such a shame that we know so little about who the Indus people were and how they saw the world. But we have some hints from its contemporaries, and what we do know really boggles my mind. These were the very first cultures to begin to settle down in cities, and within just a few centuries, they all figured out city planning, administration, bureaucracy, advanced logistics, international trade and diplomacy, military innovation, writing, poetry, literature, theology, kinship, and everything that goes with civilization today. The Harappans almost certainly had all of these just like their contemporaries. I say almost, because unlike Mesopotamia and Egypt, the Indus civilization had no massive palaces or monuments to kings and gods. In fact, the only depictions of what might be Harappan royalty or divinity are tiny clay statues or soapstone seals, barely as large as your thumb. Not very impressive compared to a Sumerian ziggurat or an Egyptian palace with colossal statues quarried and carved at great expense. In Mesopotamia and Egypt, kings might be buried in lavishly decorated tombs with gold, slaves, imported goods, sophisticated crafts and clothes which most of their subjects could never dream of affording in their lifetimes. But in Indus cities, the richest dead people we know of were buried with a grand total of 70 clay pots. 70 clay pots is really not a lot as far as ancient fortunes go. And this apparently egalitarian, well-planned and not very religious phase of Harappan society emerged after some older Harappan cities had been burned to ashes and then built over. So what on earth happened here? What does it tell us about civilization and humanity? Does it mean that inequality and blind worship of power aren't inevitable even in very popular societies with complex economies? Does it mean that revolutions can sometimes succeed? We can't be sure, but the possibilities are extremely exciting. By about 1900 BCE, the great well-planned cities of the Harappans were no longer sustainable as they, like us, began to feel the consequences of environmental degradation, disease, and climate change. Their people began to migrate away in search of more sustainable ways of living and feeding their families. The same reason why people often come to cities today. But the Harappans weren't the only peoples in South Asia at the time. Further away to the east, in the upper Ganga Valley, other natives of the subcontinent were also going about their lives, mostly in tiny little hamlets of round huts made of wooden frames filled with mud. 
We know that these people hunted, kept cattle, did a little bit of farming and knew how to make beautiful little copper objects, but not really a lot more than that. Other people were also beginning to migrate into the northwest part of the subcontinent at the time. We know from genetic and linguistic evidence that they were related to similar peoples who were entering Europe and Iran. It seems that they came from Central Asia, intermingling with the natives of the subcontinent as they moved. These are the facts as best known to experts who have spent their entire lives studying the field, though new discoveries might change things. From the interminglings of all these peoples, carrying ideas hundreds, perhaps thousands of years old, made by generation upon generation of ancestors, came the seeds of what we think of as Indian civilization today. Our ancestors must have been a rather weird bunch to look at, some of them wearing bone jewellery, some of them wearing beads, others were wearing copper and gold, some of them had painted and clean-shaven faces, others had full beards, some of them wore furs, some of them wore loincloths, some of them worshipped the forces of nature, some of them spun strange tales about gods while high on soma juice. Eventually, this mixed-up jumble of human cultures began the processes that would one day culminate in our subcontinent-spanning nation-state of 1.3 billion engineering and MBA aspirants. The middle Gangetic Plains at the time were a gigantic forest, tens of thousands of square miles across, and arguably one of the largest monsoon forests in the world, fed by the Himalayas, the third pole of the world, along with the Arctic and the Antarctic. These early Indians, organized into families and clans, began to cut and burn the forest down in order to turn it into agricultural land. And this brings us to one of the most integral components of human civilization, the origin and growth of cities. Why are cities? Why do cities exist? The way that we generally think about them is, some goober figures out that if you throw seeds on mud, a glorious, bounteous harvest immediately pops out of the ground giving her enough food to feed herself and everyone she knows. They all immediately realize that hunting is for barbarians and settle down into the cornucopia of a blissful, industrious, agrarian life, forming a village, which becomes a town, which becomes a city. Eventually, the people of the city decide that they need a king, so they choose a manly man to take care of them. The manly man sets up a garment and a bunch of cities get together to become his kingdom. Eventually, the manliest man forms a great empire so that thousands of years later, people can make podcasts about how great he was. The reality, as always, is a lot more complicated. The earliest forms of agriculture as we know them today were very simple. Small groups of hunter-gatherers or pastoralists, usually families with a wide range of a few hundred kilometers, would plant seeds in one area and return to collect the crops a few months later. Agriculture was really only a supplement to other ways of feeding yourself. But slowly, as populations grew, these other sources of food were no longer enough, creating pressures that made agriculture and coordination between large groups of people more important. The precise reasons why this happened kind of vary depending on the region we're looking at. One very interesting example comes from Ur, one of the world's oldest cities in southern Mesopotamia. Here, communities of fishermen and pastoralists living near a salty marsh and a freshwater lake found that they needed crops to support their growing numbers, since the land couldn't provide it otherwise. In the Gangetic Plains, it seems that the pressure instead came from population growth. Pastoralists began to settle on the west bank of the Yamuna River, dividing up territory among their clans, going to war over the best grazing land, and attempting to expand into more fertile lands between the Ganga and Yamuna rivers. 
Here they found people who did a little agriculture alongside hunting and other activities and assimilated them into their culture. This agriculture seems to have depended mostly on rainfall and herds of cattle were used to graze and fertilize fallow fields. All this didn't really need too much organization and so large-scale organized farming and settlements didn't really emerge in this early period. Raising and consuming cattle and their products was how people managed to feed families and keep their political and cultural structures going. But as the population began to grow, tribes of people gradually migrated into the densely forested and marshy Middle Gangetic Plains. The soil here was fertile but waterlogged, which offered both a challenge and an opportunity. You could have large yields of rice, but only if you were able to keep the fields wet for long periods of time. And so people needed to work together in large numbers to drain the land and make canals and tanks to control the flow of water. But the people doing the farming didn't always own their lands. Through a complex social and political system which we'll discuss through this season, much of the land, and thus the crops that came from the land, belonged to wealthy landowners and warlike aristocrats. These rich people traded crops for iron, salt and other goods, gradually growing wealthier and wealthier. Towns began to emerge, acting as centers for exchange between areas further and further away. Slowly, commerce emerged, as did merchants and investors and entire groups of people who no longer had to make their own food. They could just exchange other goods or services that they produced to feed themselves. These earliest towns and cities were about the size of modern neighborhoods, so not really very large. But they are definitely far less pleasant places to live in than the places that we occupy today. They usually grew organically as people began to move to centers of exchange, cramping together into small houses for safety. People also brought their farm animals with them, with all the smells, waste and chances for infection that came with that. Even if there was a king or chief in charge of things, they couldn't or wouldn't do much beyond charge tariffs, because the kind of kingship that we saw in season 2, with royal palaces and bureaucracies in the center of the city, didn't really exist yet. And so, crime, disease and filth were rampant in these early cities. In fact, there's some evidence to indicate that chickenpox, dengue fever, measles and rubella might have originated in the Indian subcontinent around this time due to the crowded and waterlogged conditions of cities in the Gangetic Plains. Most importantly, inequality was a massive problem. Royalty and their relatives and connections owned vast swathes of land, while the vast majority of people toiled thanklessly in the fields and canals. That's hard, back-breaking work, and I'm not sure how many of us today appreciate how difficult it is to survive and battle with nature day in, day out for food and shelter. We know from archaeological evidence that these farm workers, our ancestors, weren't even very healthy, though they'd given up so much for safety and food security compared to their ancestors. Most of them were short, had terrible joint and back pains, and didn't even live very long. They also had a pretty limited and basic diet. But now that kings and warlords had power and wealth, it was too late for everyone to say, screw it, we're going to go back to live peacefully in the forests and grasslands in small family groups like humans were meant to. As the pop history writer Yuval Noah Harari might put it, people's imagined realities had changed. The made-up ideas and dispensations that they'd been toiling under became the very fabric and limits of their existence. Taxes became part of reality as did religious systems explaining why people had to be miserable. War became more and more commonplace as the powerful and wealthy sought to become more powerful and wealthy. 
an ever-changing but unequal hierarchy of occupations and social positions emerged. Tiny chiefdoms became tribal federations, became petty kingdoms. Networks emerged, binding together hundreds, thousands of villages. States and bureaucracies began to evolve. The resourceless ones at the bottom could do less and less, even as the connected ones at the top could do more and more. Those who rebelled could and would be crushed by those who were paid by the powerful. Gradually, even the memory of easier times and other ways of living lives were forgotten. Those who could fled the system entirely, becoming renunciants, gathering in groups and surviving by begging for food, performing all sorts of austerities and arguing over complex metaphysical systems to try and understand, just as we do, how their history and society had led to this point, why things had to be this way, and whether there could be a kinder and more humane society for all. One of these renunciants was the son of an important chief of a clan called the Shakyas. We met him, Siddhartha Gautama, in the beginning of this episode. Now, I've been talking for a long time, but that's just to distract you from what our lad Siddhartha has been up to. Calmly walking through the forest for days and weeks, Siddhartha has almost reached the town of Isipatana, not far from the confluence of the Ganga and Yamuna rivers. It's a bustling, mucky little town, surrounded by groves where deer and ascetics wander, fed by the wealthiest people of the town. It's a cold, dark morning, and we're waiting outside a cowshed on the outskirts of Isipatana, also known as Sarnath. It's so early that the roosters aren't crowing yet. Above us, we can see tens of thousands of stars, because human cities aren't yet large or bright enough to outshine the Milky Way as they do today. The forests surrounding the town are full of the sounds of crickets and the cries of deer. A cool breeze blows in our skins, but the cowshed is warm. It smells of dung and straw, and the sounds of the heavy breathing of cows are pierced by the high-pitched snoring of the person that we are here to meet. We're on the outskirts of the town in a small farm, one among dozens that surround Isipatana. The others are slowly coming to life. There, in the distance, we can see a woman stepping out of her home to begin the day. There, we see an old man grumbling and scratching his bottom as he stirs in his sleep under the open air. Something moves in the cowshed. A cow moves with surprise, waking up the others. They wake, rustling and bumping into each other, as a tiny fellow emerges from the darkness of the cowshed and stands in front of us. He is not happy at all about having to wake up so early in the morning. What his name is and where he's from, I'm not sure, and honestly neither is he. People just call him by what he looks like, the rather undignified title of Shorty. To us, it seems like a glorious morning, but Shorty would beg to differ. He has all sorts of miserable chores lined up for today, and he couldn't even sleep properly. His back is covered with welts because his boss heard Shorty call him an under his breath. He's saved up a pouch full of parched rice and he's going to go meet an ascetic who will curse his boss so his bottom erupts and boils. As Shorty wanders into the forests and meadows on the town's outskirts, he sees homeless people huddled around tiny bonfires, shivering. Shorty hates fires. They bring back memories of his parents screaming, of his grandfather gurgling in a pool of his own blood, of a tall, fair man laughing as he rode an elephant and set his home on fire. They bring back memories of being dragged out of the forest where his people used to live and into this life of loud noises and smells and disease and suffering. 
A homeless man smiles hopefully at Shorty and extends his hand. Shorty scowls at him, gives him a little rice and keeps walking. Suffering, suffering. He hates being miserable and angry and in pain. He hates being the underdog. He hates cities. Shorty hates his life. Hurrying on, he comes to the deer meadow. It's empty except for a group of five starving ascetics who are looking with surprise at a distant, approaching figure. What are these saintly fools up to now? Shorty goes up to watch. From the forest emerges Siddhartha Gautama, his face bright with knowledge and conviction, his shoulders set. He seats himself with great care on the grass and some deer gather around him in surprise. He opens his mouth and he speaks as though straight to Shorty's heart. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Illness is suffering. Death is suffering. Being with unpleasant things is suffering. Separation from pleasant things is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. Craving is suffering. And it is craving that leads to reincarnation. The end of craving is the end of suffering. This vision, this light arose in me. Here, the noble truth of the end of suffering. Shorty drops his bag of rice and sits down. This strange monk sounds like he's going to change some things around here. He doesn't sound burdened by anything that everyone Shorty knows worries about. He sounds unburdened, enlightened, almost like a Buddha. <laughs>